Pray with me. Holy God, you have made us to know you and sent your Son that we may know you truly and be healed. In this time, may the words of my mouth be for your glory only, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder, do any of these dates mean anything to you? November 20th, 2016. July 19th, 1942. August 20th, 2000. March 18th, 2018. September 19th. 1982. I'll give you a hint. Shortly, October 6th, 2019, will be added to that list. If you didn't recognize them, and some of you ought to, these are some of the dates you were baptized on. These are some of your baptismal dates. Those are the dates that mark when you began to know God in a new way, when you were, you were brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and Jesus began in and through you to make all things new. Now perhaps, like Bridget will be today, you were baptized as an infant. Perhaps, like the children of Israel and the man in Luke 5 who was lowered through the roof to Jesus for healing, you came into relationship with Christ first through the faith of others. Now, you may not remember your baptism, but like those Israelite children, you had to grow and make that faith your own. Your own heart had to be circumcised. That is why, as the parents and godparents are charged today, Father Jean will say, when she, when Bridget is able to learn the meaning of the vows taken on her behalf today, she must come to put her faith in Jesus Christ. Although in his goodness and mercy God has made provision that the weak and that the helpless may come into covenant with him through the faith of others, they must come to know him themselves. Jesus says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God saves and makes all things new. So to that end, to knowing God better, we're going to continue today in our sermon series. Now for those of you who haven't been with us, we're preaching through the Canticles. It's a sermon series entitled Sing an Old Song. Now the Canticles are short songs, songs that have been in use by the church from the very earliest of times, uh, from the New Testament era in the first and second century, and some of them go back even farther from that. Canticle just means song. Uh, they're made up of uh, a lot of Old Testament passages, some of the Psalms, some of the prophets. 
Uh, you also see some New Testament passages in them, and occasionally the Apocrypha. Now, two weeks ago, we covered uh, what to do with that fact in a sermon, and I realize we've got enough visitors here today. I need to cover that again. Um, so briefly on the Apocrypha, for some of you, the fact that I'm preaching with the Apocrypha as my main text might be perhaps foreign or even a little uncomfortable. I don't have a lot of time to give you a full explanation, so I need to hit the high points, the most important. The first is that Jesus and the apostles made use of the Apocrypha. We see that in Scripture because they're quoting and referencing it. An example of that is Matthew 17, 6. It's quoting from the book of Sirach. The second bit is Anglicans here. We hold them as historical texts, texts that can be useful, but they're not scripture. They're not scripture, and therefore they should not be held in equal regard or used to create doctrine. Our canticle today is taken from the prayer of Manasseh. It's a prayer reporting itself to be the repentance prayer of King Manasseh that we read about in our Old Testament lesson today. Now, the church labels this as apocryphal, which means hidden, as in a hidden author. We don't really know the author. And that being true, the most important part of our use for it today is that although we don't know the author, Clearly, the author knows God, knowing God. This is how man, who is utterly lost in his sin, comes to a point where he can bend the knee and pray to God in repentance for forgiveness. 2 Kings 24, 3-4 tells us, King Manasseh's sin and leadership of Judah into sin is a major reason Judah was taken into exile along with the kingdom of Israel. This is because of Manasseh's sin and the innocent blood that he had shed. Now, if you study 2 Chronicles passage briefly, you'll notice that Manasseh's sin falls into three categories. Idol worship, murder, and apostasy, which is denying God. Now, someone commented to me this week that Manasseh's sin is utterly horrific. And for a moment, let's let that sink in. Let's soften our hearts and consider the horror of his sin. Second Chronicles 33.6 says, He burned sons as an offering. When we were reading that, did you, did you catch that earlier? He burned sons. It's plural. And there's no indication he stopped with two. In his effort to secure his future, Manasseh sought the goodwill of foreign Canaanite gods who demanded the blood of Manasseh's sons. What a difference. What a difference from our Lord who offers his own son's blood for the sake of our future. And while we're thinking about that and our hearts are open and soft, we also need to remember that when it comes down to it, we're just like Manasseh. Romans 23.3 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know this. You know this because there's choices that we make and actions that we take that we just wish we hadn't. Sometimes it just 
It happens. And sometimes we knowingly choose it. That's the truth. It's a painful truth. But if we are to know God, if we are to have eternal life, we must start here. We must start here today, especially, so we remember that we don't baptize people because it's a fun photo op. We don't baptize people because it's a nice excuse to dress up and have a party. We baptize people because God is holy. And he wants him to know us and us him. And therefore, we must come to him in repentance through Christ alone. Baptism is the doorway into that relationship. In Galatians 4, we learn that through it, we put on Christ, becoming sons and daughters of God through faith. And we receive the forgiveness of, the removal of, and the death to sin. Ezekiel 36 and Acts 2, 11 and 22 make that clear. And all of this, Scripture says, all of this is one for us. One and secured by Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus says all of this, this eternal life is knowing God. As we know from Second Chronicles, King Manasseh knows him. Do you? Let's look at our canticle together. It can be found in your bulletin on page 6 or in your Book of Common Prayer on page 81. Now, in our Old Testament lesson, we learned what life looks like when we don't know God. There's a lot of horrific sin that comes out of us. This first section of the canticle, which starts at the beginning and runs roughly to the top of page 7 in your booklet, it talks about who God is. And just like when we get to know a person here, as we get to know God, we learn about his attributes. We learn who he is, what he likes, what he dislikes. And to some extent, we know how he'll respond to situations because we know him. Throughout this canticle, there are three of God's attributes, three aspects of his nature that the canticle dwells on. It talks about God's goodness and his mercy and his patience, or older translations, long-suffering nature. Now, this triad might have resonated with you when we were reading through it, and I think it's because it's loosely based on God's own revelation to himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. We find this in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, where he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I want to tease this apart a little bit. Moses has asked to see God's glory, which would kill him. So God refuses. But, but he permits Moses to see his goodness. 
and just get a glimpse of the back of his glory. Now here we see this stark display of God's holiness, since in order to do this, God has to have the mountain cleared away. The Israelites and their animals have to get away from the mountain, lest they be killed by his mere presence and his deep love. As God passes by Moses, he says his name. Now, in the Old Testament, a name isn't just something to call someone, but it encapsulates and describes the nature of a person. It's not a mistake, therefore, that Jesus, Yeshua, in the Hebrew means God saves. Now, the canticle knows that the Lord is good and merciful and long-suffering. And because of that, it recalls for us the next part of God's name. God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, this is significant. It's significant because there are three different types of transgression that God is enumerating in his very nature that he forgives. So the first one, iniquity, avon, is a term that means to turn aside from what is right, from what is good. It's the strain from the narrow path because you weren't paying attention. Transgression, the next one, perisha, as an act of willful defiance. It's the traitor's action. It's knowing the covenant of God. Knowing what you are planning is sin and choosing it anyways. I hate, I hate when I do that one. I hate it most often because when I sin willfully like this, it's usually when I know the Holy Spirit is calling out to me and saying, stay with me. Don't go there. And when I get done sinning like that, I don't feel like I can come and ask for forgiveness. I knew better. I knew I was doing it. I knew I shouldn't have. How can I come and ask for forgiveness for that? And yet, and yet, when God tells us who he is, he says that, that exact behavior is something that by his very nature he forgives. Who, who is this God? How can we know such a pure and clean and loving being And the last one, he talks about the last transgression as a general terms. It's hata, meaning any kind of moral failure. It's the catch-all. Know the Lord. Know the Lord thy God. And as the canticle walks us through who he is, you too will rejoice as you say, you hold back your hand. You do not punish as we deserve. In your great goodness, Lord, you have promised forgiveness to sinners that they may repent of their sin and be saved. 
It's remarkable that even after all King Manasseh and Judah had done, verse 10 of 2 Chronicles tells us God's first act is to speak to them. God wanted them to repent and for it to end there. But as the Lord's name proclaims, he will by no means clear the guilty. When King Manasseh would not pay attention, God caused him to be taken into Assyrian captivity. Now let's pause and make sure we recognize this isn't an alter ego of God. He isn't Janus' face with a split personality or just has a really long fuse until it's burned out. And boy, you better watch it because here comes captivity and worse. No. No, when the Lord's patience has come to an end, his next actions are measured and intentional. They're not an emotional hissy fit. When he brings judgment, he brings it in mercy and completely in keeping with his steadfast love. Even in his judgment, his mercy and his love is present. And so Manasseh, and so we repent. Look at the canticle, just four verses from the end. It starts with, I have sinned, O Lord. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I know my wickedness only too well. Therefore, I make this prayer to you. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Do not let me perish in my sin, nor condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent. I love this part of the canticle. I love that the canticle calls God the God of those who repent. What a beautiful title. His people are the redeemed. We are those who St. Paul says in Galatians 3, were bought with the blood of Christ and who through baptism by faith are in Christ. All of his people are the repentant, those who truly know God. Because to know God... One must know his merciful forgiveness. And what clearer way than to be a recipient? Well, we're coming to the end of our canticle, but there are two major points in these last lines that it's making. The first is that God is trustworthy. We find this in the lines, For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will show forth your goodness. Unworthy as I am, you will save me in accordance with your great mercy. Again, again, it comes back to God's goodness and mercy. The canticle confesses a confidence that God is who he says he is and will do what he promised us he will do. It confesses his consistency, and this is a big deal. This is a big deal back in that time and in our time, too. In Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now that word in Malachi is given to Israel when they're in a state of unrepentance. Because God does not change. Even when we, his people, are in that state. We who are baptized are unrepentant were protected by his unchanging mercy and goodness from being consumed. 
For as the psalm says, he disciplines those he loves. He will not pardon you, but in his love he will discipline you. You know, we're the only ones who enjoy this. There's a lot of false gods out there, and with them everything is changing and shifting. They're made in the image of man, and so they're capricious. In your baptism, you became God's child, and he's faithful to always care for you as his son, as his daughter, in whom he is well pleased because of Christ's work on your behalf. Now, if you doubt that, you've forgotten. You've forgotten the earth-shaking, profound nature of your baptism. You've forgotten the effects of knowing God. Finally, the canticle leaves us with the fact that repentance does not just offer it usher in forgiveness, but it also ushers in new life. One of my professors in seminary gave us an insight into our epistle reading today. It was a Greek class, and having listened to it ever since, the light of my imagination has been brightened, and my understanding of the extent of God's intentions to heal us has been expanded beyond what I could have imagined. Now look with me at the Second Corinthians passage, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I bet at least verse 17 is very familiar to you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's a fine translation and communicates what Paul's trying to say, but it limits a little bit what we find in the Greek for the sake of clarity in the English. In the Greek, he is, doesn't exist in that sentence, but rather it reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Great, wonderful. What's the significance? The significance is found in the following verses. The significance is that when you who were baptized, when you were baptized, you became part of the new creation. You're a new creation. But beyond that, once you were adopted as God's son and daughter, he made you into a font yourself. Through God, through you, God pours out new creation into this world. You were given the ministry of reconciliation because you were baptized. You are a doorway in this era that he might pour the next, the new creation, in now because he is impatient for our healing. He is impatient for our saving. God reconciles the world to himself through your presence and proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed through his Son. 
When you, as a Christian, are kind to someone, it isn't just kindness, it's new creation. When you pick up an instrument and play it for God's glory, that's new creation. Your houses, your pets, your work in all areas, your jokes, your art, the products of your hands, the canticles you write, and most importantly, the people that you talk to are experiencing the kingdom of God, new creation pouring into this world. Friends, that is a marvelous thing. To know God, to repent, and through baptism be joined to his Christ, and forgiven of your sins and brought into new creation. This is the power of knowing God. May we and each new generation, we disciple, know God and serve God to the glory of his name and the comfort of our own souls. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.